Welcome back to Therapy Insiders Podcast from UpDoc Media. Thanks for tuning in. Got a fun one for you. Coming in with Dr. Jason Silvernail. And we're kind of going back to our clinical roots a little bit on this one. But we're also integrating a lot of psychosocial components and, and background. So Jason is a, a physical therapist with a skeptical background, a skeptic, if you follow along. Um, Jason also has in-depth knowledge and, and really integration into pain science. And even beyond that, as he talks about, it's not really pain science, it's just science. So Jason has a very, very grounded science and I would say very balanced perspective on healthcare and medicine and physical therapy with a shade of optimism, actually more than a shade, as you'll find out. And Jason also comes from a military background, so it was really cool to get his perspective on on a lot of thoughts and concepts and how it integrates and his background with the military. And I think it was a really good discussion. I think it'll it'll help a lot of you that are are wondering about pain science and wondering about incorporating a lot of complex principles into practice. But even if you're not a practicing physical therapist and you listen, I think it'll give you good context behind the latest thought process of treatment. So without further ado, let's get into Therapy Insiders after a word from our sponsor. Here's a word from our sponsor, WebPT. Now, if you've been following any of the healthcare stuff, you know that reform, compliance are very, very important and big deals and don't get talked about a lot. That's why you should check out webpt.com forward slash reform. So from ACA reform to MIPS, healthcare is changing incredibly fast. So you need to make sure you're prepared for every regulatory storm, and there are plenty. So watch out for the WebPT free webinar, Cloudy with a Chance of Reform, 2017 Trends That Will Impact Your Rehab Therapy Practice. Get it? Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs was a, was a movie. Anyway, in this presentation, expert hosts Dr. Heidi Jananga and Nancy Ham outline impending healthcare changes and explain how they'll impact rehab therapists such as yourself or your company. So check it out now. Again, the site, the link is webpt.com forward slash reform. It's a great webinar. Give it a look. It'll definitely clear things up for you. Check it out, webpt.com forward slash reform. And now let's get into this episode of Therapy Insiders Podcast with our guest, Dr. Jason Silvernail. Enjoy. Welcome back to Therapy Insiders Podcast. Dr. Gene Chirakrad here with the crew, Dr. Joe Palmer, Dr. Urson Religioso. Gentlemen, how's it going? Good, Gene. How are you? Pretty good. Urson, how are you? I'm doing well, Gene. Cold up here, unexpectedly cold in Buffalo in March. Yes. It's it's been it's been a oh, an interesting interesting quote unquote winter on the East Coast. Uh, it's been fairly mild and warm, but we're supposed to get 
about a, a foot of snow uh, coming up here in the upcoming week. So that'll be, that'll be nice for the kiddos to go play in the snow and um, for us to pretend to do work. Um, so a lot of stuff going on, as always. I feel like most most of our intros go in that direction. Um, Joe, you just had your, your brother's foundation, the Brian Palmer Foundation event, which was awesome. How, how was the turnout in that? We had a good turnout. We had uh, over 300 people come out and uh, support our foundation uh, in memory of my brother. Um, and uh, we we use that to uh, help families that have suffered the the early loss of a child um, uh, in in the state. So uh, we we do some um, some counseling sessions and uh, some some groups support groups. Um, and then we we also make donations to other organizations uh, like the Center for Infant and Child Loss. So, um, really, really proud of the event, and uh, I, I thank you for coming out, and uh, uh, thank UpDoc Media for supporting supporting the cause. Yeah, man, it was a it was a great event. Uh, BrianPalmerFoundation.org, I believe, is is the link with uh, Brian spelled B R Y A N Palmer P A L P A L M E R, and then Foundation. If you don't know how to spell that, please look that up um, and and get your spelling skills up to task um so very very cool you you should be able to to the google that urson uh you you would um so that 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 was really cool uh the recharge thing that we're following that that ryan smith and i have been doing here in maryland um has been awesome and updoc is obviously we're, we're producing a tv show around that 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 should be launching in a month or so um in april so we're pretty excited to uh, to launch one of the first, as, as far as I know, physical therapy and fitness-based TV shows. Um, so that'll be pretty cool. It's going to be uh, it's going to go through UpDoc Media on our on our on our socials. So UpDoc Media Facebook page and YouTube. Um, so I'm pretty pretty excited about that. And um, Urson, you got any courses coming up or anything? Oh, it's all, there's always a course coming up. I am actually teaching in sunny Toronto in a couple weeks, the home of Greg Lehman and other former guest. Here. Shout out. Guest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we had a, we had a pretty cool, pretty cool podcast with Greg back in the day. Um, and obviously Greg, Greg keeps putting out a ton of stuff in, in the pain science world and, and his reconciling biomechanics. And it's, it's been really cool because obviously when we started out, we started out very heavy in the clinical world when Joe and I started this podcast in 2013. Last year, we did a lot of business. Uh, this year, we started out with a lot of fitness. And and now we're, we're kind of going eclectic, Urson. We're going, going eclectic approach on this podcast. But one topic we really haven't talked about a ton, uh, we, again, Greg was one of the guys that we integrated, was pain science and and that that the world of that and, and kind of... the the history and, and the current where it is now. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to talk a little bit about that today and, and even more stuff with our guests. So Urson, as always, the honors. Right. Well, tonight we have the pleasure of having one of the internet's and social media's known skeptics. And uh, I'd actually have to thank him because uh, it was he who invaded my blog with a bunch of his colleagues several years ago and really got me thinking 
and you know at first you 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 pretty much have two choices when you're presented with literature and opinions that greatly differ from your own and some of some of the opinions were similar and some of them were 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 different enough that it was hard for me to to integrate into my practice but you know you, you have two choices you could either reject it or you can accept it and change and drastically change not really your practice but more so the way the way you conceptualize why things work and how you go about doing things so I do have to welcome and also publicly thank Dr. Jason Silvernail for coming on the podcast. So that's my intro to you, Jason. Jason's also a uh, a physio, or he's a PT, uh, doctor of physical therapy. He's heavily into pain science and skepticism, strength and conditioning, among other things. Um, Also uh, currently in the U.S. Army, right? Yeah, no, it's uh, over 25 years now. So currently and for some time now. <laughs> currently and for some time. Right. Well, welcome yeah. to the show, I Jason. You just joined oh, the army. Yeah. He's a new recruit. Yeah, no, no, not not so much new. Thanks, fellas, so much for having me. It's a, It really is great to be here. Uh, you know, I am in the, uh, in the U.S. Army, and so one of the things we have to do when we talk is kind of give our little disclaimer, so get ready for it. Everything I talk about tonight with you guys is my personal opinion and commentary and not the official policy or position of the Department of Defense, the United States Army, or the U.S. government. Who do we talk to to get that? Because uh, that's, that's, what, that's what we really wanted. No, it's right. not. I'm the wrong mm-hmm. guest for that. Is okay. the, so I don't know <laughs> okay. who you well, or whatever. I don't know. Maybe you can salvage this by maybe asking me some questions or something, but I'm, I'm not that guy. Tell me about your cat. Which I have two cats. Which one? Two you cats? Have? Oh, well... T- Start with your favorite and work your way down. Oh, you can't. I have no favorites. <laughs> Both the arcades. Good, good answer. Good answer. Yeah, oh, that's good. So the one everybody knows is Mr. B. He's uh, big and fluffy and gray, and we have a lot of pictures of him on our social media accounts. He mm-hmm. actually has his own Facebook page, and he has like um, way more followers than I have friends, and he may have more followers than the Therapy Insiders podcast. Oh, I would. I, I would be surprised. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. There's a lot Cats of on the internet. Yeah, cats. Is, is he on Instagram on the IGs? No, you know, I don't think I don't think he has a big Instagram presence. He, I think he's he's maybe a little bit more traditional as internet cats go, and mm-hmm. he hasn't quite you know broken into to, the IGs. You called it the IGs, Instagram. Yes. These days. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, you got you got to hip that cat up. Yeah, yeah I'm, you know, we'll do it again. I will pass that on to his social media manager, my wife Carolyn, who will. Uh, We'll, we'll see if that's something we want to get involved in. you got to go slow in the world of cats and the Internet. You don't want to go too far and make a marketing mistake. That that's very true. Th- th- there's a lot of cats. you gotta, you got to be the right kind yeah, of cat. I don't know. He's, um, he's got a lot of attitude. I think, uh, I think he's definitely capable of standing up with the big cats. But I guess we'll see. Well, obviously, he's opening this, this podcast up and, and we're talking about him. So yeah. he's, got, he's got some heft. Um, yeah, we've probably talked about him more than any of us so far. So yeah, put that in a win the win column for Mr. B. There you it's go. Probably our highest rating podcast because we're talking about cats. Yeah, you know what, person, we're expanding our audience. You know, we, we're doing well. We have a good following, and when that happens, you, you gotta you gotta diversify your audience. So we're going out for the cats. Okay. Well, if the internet. So I think I'm gonna be the guy that helps you guys break into the pet section of, of podcasts on iTunes. This is great. Oh, great. This is great. You see, I'm a transitional guest. Is what really is what it is. I can do both. 
you open doors. You're opening doors, and uh, I thank you for that. This is this is great. Um, speaking of thank you, I, I, I really liked Urson's um, intro of you, and it, it kind of spanned a good bit. But every every time I hear an an intro, and we kind of talked with Scott Morrison a little bit about this, the whole skeptic title, um, like to me, when somebody when somebody is introduced that way, it almost seems like a backhanded compliment. Do, are are you proud of that? And how do you how do you perceive when somebody calls you a skeptic? Uh, yeah, I guess I never really thought about it until just now when you asked me the question. Um, I, I'm not offended by it at all. I mean, I think we should all be skeptics. I think that there's probably not enough people um, thinking about things carefully, uh, examining what they think and why, and you know, maybe using a little bit more care and concern with the information they take in and, and how they integrate new things into their thought process. And so uh, I'm perfectly happy to be called a skeptic. I've been called way worse. <laughs> uh, and I think that probably all of us should be skeptics um, to some degree. I, it doesn't have a negative connotation with me at all. And this, is this, this has been an evolutionary kind of mindset. So you, you got into the military 25 years ago. Let's. What, what made you want to go into the military, and how has that shaped your thought process? And do you think it makes you it, it makes it unique because um, from from guys that we've talked that have been in the military, like guys from EIM, John Childs. Larry Benz that have been in, in Air Force. I feel like when we speak to military people or people that have a military background, their their thought process is, is different than people that haven't been in there. So do you think that that shaped it? Well, yeah, I think the, the Army's been a huge influence in my life. I think it would be crazy to think that it didn't have uh, far-reaching influences. I mean, I think not only just clinically, but in life in general. Um, I think when, when I was a little kid, I really... My, my real goal was to be a garbage man because I, I saw the guys riding on the back of the trucks and that's really what I wanted to do. And my mom was all, dream big, kid. <laughs> but after garbage man, it became Spider-Man. And then when I figured out none of those were really all that marketable, the next thing I wanted to do is be a soldier. So uh, I'm, you know, I've been, you know, I've, I've been living, the, people joke about living the dream, but I, I actually get to do that, which is, which is pretty cool. That's quite a list. It yeah, went, so it went from garbage man to Spider-Man to soldier, yeah. yeah. But each one of those professions helps other people, right? Yeah. You're in the service field. Yeah, that's right. It's a service business, man. you got to get yeah. with it. They're all largely thankless jobs. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. They are thankless jobs. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, Ursa, you're just layering it on, man. Come up, didn't come to work that if I didn't come to work. We'll just we'll put it that way. So the right. garbage man's definitely more important than me in that regard. Uh, he definitely would be more missed on a day-to-day basis than I would be probably. Oh, Although I've, I've heard I've heard the garbage gig is actually a very profitable job. Like it, it's it's a government job, so you have government benefits, and and they pay f- fairly well because obviously not, not a ton of people um, are lining up to do it. And uh, as a kid, I mean, to see that the guy riding that truck all the time, that, yeah. that's pretty freaking cool, I think. I think I was a little less focused on the benefits and reliable job opportunity and more focused on the riding of the truck part. But um, I'm not sure. Maybe that doesn't happen all the time. It's about to get real cold here in the next few days uh, here in Maryland where I live right now. And so uh, that wouldn't be the, the best deal in the world to ride in the back of a truck when it's that cold. Oh, nice. Where, where in Maryland are you? Uh, I'm in Silver Spring currently. Okay. Yeah, I move every two to three years in the Army, so that's where I am right now. You're in my backyard. I'm in Mount Airy. Oh, great. Yeah, we should um, we should, we should should say we're going to go uh, grab a cup of coffee and never do it like everyone else. 
That's exactly right. We are going to do that, Gene. Thank you. Let's yes. go out for coffee sometime. That sounds like a great idea. Bring your cat. The cat stays inside and the coffee's never happening. So let's move on. <laughs> so you might as well just said, yes, I will bring him on a leash. Yes, he will love to join us. Yes, his typical, his typical harness. Uh, we'll bring him in his typical harness. And uh, he likes herbal tea, so I'd have that ready. If you don't mm, want I pegged him as an Earl Grey. Yep. No, it's, it's pretty good. That's very close. Yeah, he likes a little orange rind in it. Fresh, if you please. Yeah, we could find we could find something like that. Um, all right, getting back on track, um, or at least starting to get on track. So you, you you go through the military. What as you go through the military, what made you want to be a, a physical therapist? Has it always been the goal? And what what over the that span of your career, kind of how has your thought process evolved as a clinician? Oh, that's you guys. That's quite a, that's quite a question. So um, so In pretty pretty bookish. Pretty bookish type kid in uh, in high school, um, you know, lots of books, no dates, um, but pretty smart kid. At least that's what they said at school. So I always thought I wanted to be a doctor, wanted to go to medical school. Uh, all excited to do that. Mom and dad said, "Look, um, let why don't you follow some of these folks around for a little bit, see a little bit, see what their job is like, and see if it's for you." So I went and followed around a family practitioner, and I, I just remember coming home after the first couple of days and like, man, I I don't like this at all. Like, this is this is not for me at all. I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe we just need to find a new specialty. So um, then I followed around. I think it was an orthopedic surgeon, maybe. And I thought, oh, no, <laughs> no way. That's not going to work either. Uh, I mean, I think I went and saw a dentist. No, people's mouths. That's not going to work. Uh, have you seen inside there? I mean, <laughs> wow. So that was – so I said, okay, well, maybe I'll follow around a nurse. And then like half half into it, I'm like, these people work too hard. There's no way this is going to work. And so for whatever reason, you know, I ended up um, thinking about PT. At the time I went to school, uh, and this was the late, uh, this is the mid, mid-90s, uh, P- PT was a big deal because of the way that Medicare payment structures were done. And um, so I thought about that uh, and then kind of went, went into that direction thinking that was maybe it. And then probably like most PTs, you know, I, I got myself a, a pretty serious injury and had to rehabilitate. And then I remember going through therapy and thinking, man, this, this is exactly what I want. This is for me. It's okay if it pays less than half what our colleagues in medicine make. This is really what I want to do. So that's, that's what I ended up doing. I uh, got an ROTC scholarship for uh, school. Uh, Mom and Dad didn't quite have all that much money, but Uncle Sam had some to loan. If I was you know, willing to run around in the woods and paint my face and shoot guns and all that stuff was in the brochure and it sounded great to me. And so... You know, went to basic training like the day after I graduated from high school. So I graduated from high school. Like there's this big party at school. It's like, hello. And then like the recruiter like literally picks me up like six hours later in the driveway. And, you know, we drive off. Not so much into the sunset. It was uh, Fort Sill. Everyone there? Yeesh. Oklahoma. Anyway, uh, you know, was enlisted for a little while and it went, then went to ROTC, got a commission and been you know, on an active duty as a, as a PT ever since. It certainly has uh, sent me all over the world, all over the country. Uh, and um, it's just been, it's been a, just an extremely positive recurrent kind of force for my personal and professional development since then. So as a, as a PT in the military, uh, you guys have additional things in your practice act, right? Additional power to your practice act that your typical PT uh, does yeah. not have, right? Yeah, yeah. In the in the military, you get clinical privileges based on what your education and professional training prepares you to do, not based on what the legislature will give you based on who's giving them lobbying money, not to put too fine a point on it. 
So things like ordering imaging studies and laboratory tests and, you know, work excusals, um, you know, referrals to other practitioners, lecture diagnostic studies, all, all that kind of stuff. You know, we, we, have, we, have the, we have the clinical privileges that match our professional training. Which I understand is not something in the civilian world outside, which is a, like the common term for people who are outside the military. So I don't know what I'm going to do when I eventually have to get out of the Army. They tell me it does have to happen sooner or later. Uh, so it'll be it'll be pretty interesting to see how I make that transition. I, I'm always joking that there'll be little fingernail marks on the ground as they drag me out of the army when it's finally my turn, my time to leave. <laughs> well, you can stick around in Maryland. We're we're pretty good here with uh, with our direct access, but definitely not not from what I've heard with the military. Um, do you get when you when you travel around when you're in different states? Are you always as as a clinician with the jurisdiction of the army, regardless of what the, what state you're in? Yeah, the state doesn't really matter. You're on federal property, so you're you're credentialed through the hospital, uh, and your 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 credentials, your clinical privileges are administered through those. Uh, everybody who's a licensed independent practitioner, which is really the term I prefer, that's that's what Joint Commission calls them, LIPs. Uh, so all those all LIPs, licensed independent practitioners, are on the medical staff. So we're all we you know we all go to medical staff meetings and all that whole thing, and that's not. That's not restricted to some kinds of doctors and not other kinds, and there's a lot less of that, you know, status anxiety foolishness for the most part. AKA bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. No yes. No um, are are you allowed to treat civilians? Um, let's see. Um, so, in my role in a in a federal healthcare facility, I treat folks who who are covered by the Tricare uh, health insurance system. Okay. So if you are a Tricare beneficiary, if you have Tricare benefits in some way, uh, I can take care of you. And in some cases, if uh, certain other folks, like um, you know, people have VA benefits under certain sharing agreements that different hospitals use. But yeah, you have to be a military beneficiary essentially in some way. So you have to be you know in the military or retired from the military or you know have military benefits in in, in some way through the Tricare system for me to take care of you. I have a question for you, Jason. Um, I did uh, my fellowship with someone who was taking con ed courses, and uh, she was in the military, I believe the Army, and she, you know, we were just talking about difficult cases or cases that weren't otherwise responding, maybe like no-fault cases or your kind of chronic MVA or maybe, you know, workers' comp, and, and she was just saying she didn't understand that mentality because her her patients basic basically they would they would almost not go to her because they just wouldn't even want to either go off duty or they weren't they weren't exaggerating injuries or dragging out injuries they were even just concealing their injuries do you find that to be true because I, I just wasn't sure if that was a military thing or if that was just her experience yeah I don't know I mean I, I think I'm probably I'm probably pretty opinionated about a great many things, <laughs> but also probably this topic, uh, you know, in particular. And I would say that, so in, you know, gosh, how long have I been in Army healthcare now? Um, 20 years or so, 20 of my 25 years have been in Army healthcare. I've maybe seen four people who I think were deliberately malingering, maybe four. Uh, I think just about everybody else, and I, th and I think this is true of folks in the quote-unquote civilian world as well, um, there's complex reasons why people end up seeking care, and it is pretty um, short-sighted and judgmental of many of us in the healthcare industry to decide that these folks are, are um, you know, 
pursuing secondary gain or something else like that. People don't stop being people when they put uniforms on. We have different sets of incentives, certainly, and we have certain um, like physical things that people need to get back to, fitness tests and that kind of thing, but I don't think it's too different from folks who don't wear the uniform. Uh, I think many of us in, in medicine, we're, we're far too quick to label somebody you know, is, uh, you know, is you know, stretching it out or, or, you know, with secondary gain. We, we often forget these people that we accuse of secondary gain. There's a lot of primary losses that nobody thinks about either. Uh, there's, you know, loss of um, status and position in their job, loss of their personal flexibility to do what they want to, having to go to all these medical appointments. I don't think if you were to put it in a, in a balance sheet for pros and cons that too many people would take that deal. I don't think too many people would give up all the all the primary losses in order to get some of those uh, really paltry type secondary gains. Um, but I do see a fair number of folks who wait far too long before they come in to seek care because um, you know they're they're just trying to get their mission accomplished or you know they don't want to appear a certain way in front of people that they lead and there's there's a lot of that kind of stuff. So uh, so if anything, it might go a little bit the other way around. Is that um, you know people just wait a little bit too long to come get taken care of. A lot of stuff that I can really help them with and take care of, and they sometimes will delay that, thinking that, well, I don't know, I'm not sure. <laughs> thinking that maybe they haven't had the best experience of the healthcare system so far, which I think is true of all of us, uniformed or not, uh, or maybe they just, you know, they're, they're interested in trying to self-manage or, or, or not, not be a care seeker, so to speak. Wow. Jason, that's about the least skeptical thing I've ever heard anybody say. Uh, Urson, are you sure about this whole uh, skeptic thing? Well, I was going to get to that, too. <laughs> Be skeptical in what way? In, in getting coffee with cats. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical of the healthcare system's treatment of these folks. I'm not really skeptical about them so much. Well, I think that the, the piece is that we are trained to be pattern recognizers. And I think it, it, it's emphasized in incredible amount because it's it's obviously useful it's useful to recognize patterns but then we're, we're trained to be pattern recognizers then we're forced to be efficient um, and then when the two come together when you have to pick up patterns to be efficient to see more people to make more money and yeah it doesn't always come back to money that's not necessarily the point but the point is that we become kind of robotic in that nature is that we want to pick up the pattern we want to treat the person we want to get them better we want to show them that we're worth it uh, deductibles, everything going up, you know, we want to do the best that we can for some of these people and, and vice versa, you know, secondary gains, malingering, all that stuff. Sure, you might have one every three years, but like anything else, you know, the, the one negative will always kind of hang out there longer than most. And um, when it doesn't fit into the pattern or it does fit into the pattern that you already created, it's hard to move away from that sometimes. Well, I, I think that that's that's certainly true, but I, but I think a lot of times I, I work. So I train I train clinicians as often as I can. You know, I train you know more junior clinicians, and you know every once in a while this this sort of topic will come up in a case review, and it's I I, I I'm very skeptical of our my our fellow colleagues who are into this, and that you know it's true across medicine. You know, e even if this is all those things are true of this of this patient that that we're going to talk about. Why does that matter? Why, why is that even something we're thinking about? We are, too many of us in medicine are really focused on judging people personally in ways that just are not helpful for their medical care. I mean, I've either given them the best of what I can give them in therapy or I haven't, regardless of the, 
of, you know, what they do with that or, you know, what I think they should do with that or whether I think they have, quote unquote, real symptoms or not. I mean, I've either done everything I can or I can't. And if I've done everything I can, it's time to move that person on. And if I haven't done all I can, then it sounds like I need to get to work. But neither of those two things have much to do with what the person's, um, you know, I don't know, um, whether I think they have quote unquote real pain or whether they're seeking it out or all that stuff is just irrelevant to me. It's, you know, it's like their favorite color. It just, it doesn't matter. Or at least I think it shouldn't. I agree with that. I think a lot, a lot of it has to do with projecting because their success is our success in a lot of ways. And that if, if you're working with someone that you perceive they will not benefit from what you're giving them, then it's a failure on you. And that, that, that's hard for some people because they're, they're invested. And I think that, that, you have to define a mindset that separates that, that people need to, it works both ways, right? We want to give people this kind of self, um, self-efficacy and, and, and ability to, to take care of themselves, but we need to be able to, to separate that their success and their failure isn't necessarily always on us either. Yeah, those, I think we need to decouple those things if we're, going to be, um, if we're going to be successful in the clinic in the long run. I spent a fair amount of time trying to do that with more junior clinicians. So, um, you know, I, you know, I'll, I'll state it this way. And so it, it sounds a little harsh, but bear with me. <laughs> I don't care if my patients get better or not. And you know, when I say I don't care, it's not that like I care as a human being. I don't want people to suffer. I don't want people to be unhappy. I don't want people to have symptoms, all of that stuff. But I, I can't, the outcome is not, is not a hundred percent under my control. So the outcome isn't up to me, you know? And so I, I think I had a, a quote a while back that, that people seem to like a bit that says, you know, when I freed myself from the out from the responsibility of the outcome of the clinical encounter, something interesting happened. I freed my patients from blame also. And so I'm not interested in blaming people. And I'm also whether or not they get better, better or not is not up to me. What's up to me is doing the best that I can with the skills and, and the reasoning model that I have to get people as, as far along as I can. And whether or not they, we are successful there isn't up to me. My, my, my part is my part. Their part is their part. I'm not upset or bothered or I don't take it personally, you know, if they don't, you know, do what I think they should or whatever. All that stuff is just irrelevant. And when you get there, clinic becomes a lot more fun. It becomes a lot more fun and it becomes, it becomes a much happier prospect to spend your entire day just helping people. And how many people can say that they have a job that involves that? And I think that there's, there's a lot of potential for us to help our more junior clinicians um, sort of reconnect with some of that, that, that joy and that, that sort of basic satisfaction with the great, great job we have to help people if we can kind of lead them to that mindset. Yeah, I would totally agree. Yeah, I would. Joe, Joe, let me ask you, Urson. I know you want to go over the skeptical stuff, but I want to ask <laughs> Joe along along the, along those lines first, because uh, you, you go through, you, you train clinicians, and you bring in young clinicians. And and Jason, I completely agree with you. I, I share similar similar sentiments in my mastermind group. Um, I tell I tell them all the time, you need to start caring less, and not not as a human being, but you need to pick the things you can control. You need, you know, we talk about locus of control all the time. We want, we want people, we want patients, customers to have that locus of control. We need to have the same. And we, we can't rely on their outcomes to be 
our success necessarily. Joe, when, when you're training young clinicians or you're training clinicians to be part of your culture, how, how do you integrate that, that, that you want them to, to obviously be um, empathetic, I guess, to an extent, but also you want them to, to realize what they can and can't control? Um, I think they, they do need to realize what they can and can't control, but um, I, I will say that we're, we're not promoting that, uh, that they need to relinquish the idea that they, that they, uh, <clears throat> that they're going to do their part and the patient is going to do their part and, and the result is, is, is not, uh, not influenced, uh, not, not totally in their control. I, I think that it, you're right. It's not totally in their control, but I, I do want them to be, be looking at how, um, they can uh, influence uh, their patient's perception of things, and, and so we we went through some of the motivational interviewing, um, and and we try to uh, get them to to get to the why of 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 really why their patient is there, um, and and hopefully be able to develop a rapport to the point where you can. Um, have an effect on on the patient's motivation. Uh, now, that's that's the art, I think, of physical therapy. It, that's that's not the science. <laughs> that's the art. And so, I just I think that uh, while I while I hear what Jason's saying, um, I, I think that uh, if you totally um, segregate the two and and don't. Uh, don't look for ways that you can interact and 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 really convince that that uh, patient to to give a little bit more uh, to get a better outcome. I, I think I think uh, yeah, it's harder. Uh, yeah, it's it's less less uh, less freeing, but I think that there is some benefit to doing it. Well, I think in the skeptical world, we call that a straw man. So I think that being focused on yourself and your and what you can do doesn't mean that you don't that you don't care or try to engage the patient's internal motivation. It's just that we need to stop seeing whether or not our patients get better or not as some sort of direct reflection of us because it's just not the case and it never has been. So you know I I've got my part to do. The patient probably has theirs, uh, but we've also got the environment, we've got the social background, we've got the nature of the disorder. Uh, some some disorders just don't respond to the, um, you know, to, to physical therapy. I mean, I'm, I'm sad to say I don't have the cure for everything. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of other different factors at play. We need to maximize ours, which does include um, finding the patient's internal motivation to change their behavior if that's needed. I mean, a, a long time ago, I thought my job was the evaluation, diagnosis, and treatment of musculoskeletal problems, and it turns out I'm in the business of behavior change, and I think all you guys understand that. But not too many of our not our colleagues don't always understand that they are in the business of behavior yeah. change. So we but try they to, are, whether they realize it or not. We try to get them to understand. Uh, you know, are, are they are they going to be part of the the solution, the the fix, or do they need to do they need to be uh, educating on how they're going to. Uh, cope with some of, I mean, some some of these conditions, like you say, they're not going to respond to to. You're not going to fix them, all right. How can how can you how can you direct them to be as functional as possible? How can you educate them, um, and then and then move them forward? Um, uh, 
and and if they need to go to, to somebody else, then, then get them to the next provider that they need to see. If they need to understand that, uh, you know, this is this is spinal stenosis that uh, you know you're you're gonna have to kind of figure out how to deal with. Uh, you know, we're 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 not not changing it. Um, then then we 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 coach them on on that uh, perception change. Yeah, I, th- I think there are several things that, uh, because I've been at this so long, that I-, I would I would definitely agree with what Jason is saying. I think novice clinicians really need to realize uh, a couple of simple things. One is it's actually okay to discharge someone and have them still have pain or limitations because sometimes that last little bit is just going to just get better on its own and you can't affect that at all and it's just going to be time for whatever reason and i think um another thing is that it's hard to relate to someone you feel like you fail someone even though you tried your best especially if they went for surgery and i think we touched upon this with perry nicholson that it is hard to relate to someone who's in a significant amount of pain unless the universe has been kicking your ass so I think that's like if overall you've been healthy most of your life or you haven't even had a pain a painful event that significantly limited your function in many years you really don't remember because by and large the human race doesn't pretty much remember significant trauma otherwise we wouldn't be propagating so you know it's <laughs> It's, what does propagating mean again? I don't know. I'm just still what? trying to figure it out, but I have all these kids around me, and you know. <laughs> Keep trying. Keep trying. Let me let us know how that goes. Right. Yeah, seriously. Something to do with wine and my wife being cute, but I don't know. <laughs> I guess try harder. I don't right. Know. No, please don't give him that advice. No. Um, but there, yeah, he's tried plenty. Right. Of I mean, I, I think that that is great advice. Yeah, as much as I like to distance myself from how well my patients are doing, there there are still a couple cases. Every every you know one or two a year that I just think oh what if I could have done I feel like I could have done more for them, but but it is it is very liberating to to distance yourself from patient outcomes especially if you know that you brought your A game that day. Yeah, I think it's important to, that we, we we have a lot of folks who have grown up in sort of the medical model and you know the extent to which many of our practitioners of, of all different kinds of professions. Um, really feel like it's about them and not about the patient. I, I've been continually surprised at the, the extent to which that is a, a, a big and, in my opinion, sort of um, underappreciated problem in medicine. And we take really good ideas and we put it into this sort of practitioner-centric, I need to educate you, you need to understand X, Y, Z. And um, I think we can get, some, some not, we can get to some not-so-nice places uh, you know, by taking that kind of uh, approach that's that's much more practitioner centered than than patient centered. Well, it, it really like it, I had I had this moment that really hit me a couple of years ago. Um, a friend of mine, he he's a a master electrician was um, was at work. Text me, hey, can you come over? My back's really jacked up, and um, I come over, look at him, you know, help him with some stuff. Do you know did, did a T spine manip on him? He's moving better. He feels better. And um, he's like, wow, I can't, I can't, he says to me, I can't imagine knowing all this and doing all this. And I was like, do you remember, it's just like all, it all hit me at that point. I was like, do you remember like 
two or three weeks ago when you came over and helped install a light and I was looking at you kind of like an idiot with, with my head tilted, looking at the different color um, electrical wires. Like I, I would have killed myself trying to do that. So it's, it's all perspective and, and what we know and our experience and what we're trained to do because it, it could very easily flip. And if we have if we have that hierarchy mindset that we are above, the patient is learning, um, we, you know, we are kind of dominating the situation. It, it, it's, it really is a perspective piece, kind of like Kirsten was, was alluding to earlier. Right. I wanted to ask you, Jason, um, you know, alluding to your, your popular Facebook post from a while back, uh, the problem with OMPT, when did you initially, you know, start feeling that way about, you know, the passive manual therapies and like the schools of thought and, um, you know, like what, what did you always kind of feel like, oh, I don't really feel this or I don't believe I could do this or, or did something bring you to that transition? Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because I really, I, I kind of did things backwards in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And so, um, when I wrote the problem with OMPT, I, I didn't have much formal training in OMPT. Uh, I mean, I, this was before I was fellowship trained or anything like that. And so, you know, I, I would get into these you, you got fellowship uh, training after you heard that. I'm surprised. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if I would go through yeah, it again now. I went, I went to fellowship training prepared to go to war, uh, with, with all of that whole, with this so much, Oh, you got to feel this and you got to feel that and all that. kind. Of, so I went to OMPT fellowship training as a skeptic with my hands up already. And, and when you say go to war, you're you're one of the few people that could actually say that and mean it. Yeah, no, not. I mean, I have actually gone to war, but it's not. I'm not <laughs> using it in that in that terminology, and it's not an experience I recommend, by the way. But um, I believe you. So, so I, I think that I wrote that because um, I just I was at the time I think sort of inundated with a lot of people who were very um, very smug about what they could and could not do and could and could not feel and all that kind of stuff. And I think that at this point, I, I don't remember the time this was. I mean, I suppose it's the early 2000s or so. And, um, you know, it just you know, enough of this data comes out, enough papers come out showing problems with reliability and validity and that kind of stuff. And so much of the things that many people in the OMPT world, you know, big, big picture wise, were claiming were just obviously false. I mean, obviously, if you can, if you have an inter, if you have an internet connection and a brain, uh, and then that's kind of what led me to write that. And then, of course, you know, several years later, and I'm not even sure how many, maybe two or three, um, you know, I got accepted to the Army Baylor Doctoral Fellowship at Fort Sam Houston, and I went through a manual therapy fellowship, and I loved it, and it totally revolutionized everything that I did and everything I was as a clinician for the better, and. Um, that's one of the most, single most influential experiences positively that I've ever had in my professional career. See, those are the, those are situations that I love to hear about. Like when people are skeptical about something and then they actually put themselves in a situation to experience some of the stuff they're skeptical about. And, and people that always say that if, if, I, if I'm shown different or if I'm shown better, I will use it. And people that actually do that, you know, that that puts me that that puts you at a different level of respect that you're actually willing to adjust your, the the trajectory of your of your career and and your thought process. Well, I mean, I think also it, it really depends on the experience you have too. Uh, so I went to the OMPT fellowship expecting that there was going to be a lot of this sort of you know structural kind of a thing to it, and so I mean I'm 
I'm, you know, I don't, there may be a lot of people who don't understand the different kind of schools of thought of manual therapy and the physical therapy world. And, um, you know, the things that I was most critical of were the more osteopathic, structural, positional kind of stuff. And I went to a fellowship program that was based in Maitland. And we just didn't do any of that stuff. I mean, they never asked me to feel something that nobody could really feel or to, to diagnose based on structure or, you know, talk to people about their fascia. I mean, we just didn't do any of that at all in fellowship, like not even once. And in fact, my instructors openly mocked people who would try to Oh, like use the delay test to figure out which part of the sacrum is rotating or whether their sacral base is mutated. Or I mean, th this was this was openly mocked in our fellowship program internally as something that was just the wrong way for manual therapy to go. And the Maitland concept in general um, plugs in very when when science changes, the basic uh, sort of scaffolding or, or background or foundation of the Maitland concept, you know, fits very well with uh, modern neuroscience and, and with the changes in the um, evidence base for manual therapy. It survives quite well uh, because it doesn't make any really any unsupportable claims, which is really uh, a big part of uh, what gets people in trouble, um, you know, with skeptics in the first place. I think people, they get emotionally attached to whatever it is they're doing because they have success with it because typically most everything works as long as it's a novel input. And, and that's where that's where they get so offended, um, you know, and, and they they can't get over their cognitive dissonance. Now, when you're when you're in, say, a more heated online discussion, I know several years back this was just going on, you know, and, and I was part of many of these things, too. And I bowed out of most of them because it's, it's essentially the same thing over and over again. But it, at what point do you feel like I'm never going to convince this person? Like, do you maybe throw a few articles out there or do you start them off lights and um you know with some light reading or you just give them some like mind-blowing thing like Bielowski's seminal article from years ago that pretty much throws everything out you know um like I, I just feel like oh maybe I'll try with one article and then as soon as they just start talking about but I'm successful or this or that or you know I'm just kind of like oh I'd rather just do this in person I think Ursula is asking, how do you skeptic a biased skeptic? Yeah, well, well, it's, so I think, so I've gone through like a lot of different stages, you know, in terms of like the, the time and attention I put to discussing and sorting through issues online and, you know, how much of that I do and how stridently and on what topics and at what level and that kind of stuff. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to talk about, you know, even though that's changed for me, I don't want to. I don't want to sort of say that the way I went through it is the way everybody should and, and that kind of stuff because, it, you know, a fair number of people are, are, are kind of like that. But I would say when I'm having this sort of back and forth with someone who doesn't appear uh, all that open to what I have to say, I'm not talking to them. I, I don't ever have a discussion trying to convince somebody else. Like I don't – I just don't care. I don't care if they believe me or not. I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to the people who are watching. I'm talking to the lurkers. I'm Which talking. is always going to be more than yeah. Than the way, first of all, there's way more of these folks, and they're sitting back and they're just watching to see who says what. And I'm trying to be the guy who is eminently reasonable and polite, and sure of himself in sort of a non-aggressive um, type of a way, and has some decent literature to su support what he does. But you know, not not bombing and like going all you know crazy with the references. You know, that's it, called uh, 
the argument, you know, uh, proof by, by verbosity. It's a logical fallacy. You don't want to do that. But um, I don't ever try to convince somebody else. Trying to convince people, like that's step one. There's there's where we're going wrong. Don't ever try to convince somebody. That's just a that, that's a horrible mistake. They're not going to listen to you until you're, they're moving toward you. They have to move towards you first for you to get through. And most of the people who might be moving towards you are people who aren't participating in the conversation. They're just watching the conversation unfold. And then these people will message you later. These people will talk to you later. They'll friend request, they'll follow you, all those sorts of things. Like five years later? And that, that's what you focus on. Yeah, sure. I, I will have, I'm, I have I've had many uh, extended online tense exchanges, we'll call them, with many people over however many years I've been doing the social media, 15 years maybe, I guess. And oftentimes, in the middle of this, people will send me this little private message or whatever, when whatever platform we're using, like, hey, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't agree with this guy, but I was just listening, and it really seems like what you're saying is pretty reasonable. Where can I go to learn more? You know? So don't, when you're in these conversations with people, don't ever try to convince somebody else. That's, your first, that's the first mistake. That, that's a big behavior. a land science. war in Asia. It's just you don't do that. Yeah, it's a big behavioral science principle, and actually we use it in marketing all the time. It's, you know, it's, it, it's mostly powerful when people can realize things for themselves versus you telling them what to think. And, and the, the better you can lay out that path for that realization, the more successful you'll be at helping the people that are ready to be helped. Just like Inception. Well, it's just, it's well maybe, cool. but I mean, I think it, motivational interviewing is a lot like that too. It's, you know, the, it, you know, the expression is it's incorrect to correct is what I think what Feldenkrais said. And so I think motivational interviewing says you have to resist the writing reflex. Don't tell people that what they're doing is wrong and they should change. You know, whether it's patients or colleagues or whatever, you, ha you have to get to know someone to some degree. You have to know what, what's important to them, you know, and you have to pull from them what they're interested in knowing about and then talking about that. And so in those exchanges, if people are in it to try to convince somebody else or they think they're going to win if the other person agrees, I mean, I don't know what the recipe for frustration is, but that sounds like it's all things BS. It's all bullshit. This is all bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> um, let, let's go over some questions, Jason. We got some on, on social media for you. Um, um, pain science obviously has been coming up a lot. It's been gaining a lot of, a lot more traction, at least uh, more mainstream in terms of physical therapy. I'm, I know it's been around so for, for a while. It, it's not, it's not a new topic, which blows a lot of people's minds. But um, Sam Sam Spinelli asked, "What is the what is the best starting point for students to learn more about pain science?" Maybe along that same question, maybe kind of give a breakdown, a 10,000 foot view of what pain science is and, and how most people are actually kind of doing it anyway. But what is the whole thought? What, what is the science of it? Yeah, um, I'm not quite sure. I don't know when I got hand, handed the mantle of uh, the guy who knows what pain right now. science is. I think Gene just gave that to me. I'm not, I mean, can I give that back at all? Nope, uh, nope, nope. Right now, it's yours. You're so inflexible, Gene. Uh, Absolutely. So the, the deal is with yes, this, because I think my, my mindset about this has changed uh, probably over the last several years. And, and so I'm, I think I'm a little bit of a, um, I'm in a little bit where I'm not quite sure where some of that transition will go, which is actually kind of a nice place to be. But I would say that um, had you asked me a couple years ago about what pain science is, I would say that it was uh, concerned with the neuroscience of why people hurt and uh, how that's relevant to human pain and, and function and what that should change uh, in what we do uh, clinically 
and in the directions that things play, where things head from a research perspective. So historically in, in physical therapy and in orthopedic medicine, physical medicine in general, it's all essentially been based around connective tissue healing. I mean, so that's the whole deal. Like the reason people hurt, it was assumed to be some sort of connective tissue problem. Something is torn, ripped, damaged, ruptured, herniated, whatever, and isn't healing. So we need to help it heal by providing it some structured rest, by providing it some um, structured loading protocol through, through some kind of rehabilitation. And if it was still painful, the assumption was it hasn't healed. We need to do what we can to push more blood to that area. We might use, might use heat to do that or cross-friction massage or various different kinds of injections or that kind of stuff. I mean, that's like people should understand that, that that's, where, that's where physical medicine comes from as an overall uh, perspective. It comes from the perspective of connective tissue healing. Uh, and, and that's obviously a very incomplete lens through which to look at why people hurt and have clinical problems. And so um, over time, as more, more information came out about the neuroscience of uh, sensation, perception, uh, pain, um, the psychological and social factors that influence those sensations and perceptions, this is kind of like how those things, how neuroscience sort of um, impinges on or affects the pain experience and pain rehabilitation is what, what most people mean, I think, when they use the term, quote unquote, pain science. It's not pain science, it's just science. And there's a lot of new science that should change a lot of what happens in the, in the physical medicine uh, world. And although it is not going to change at the speed with which I would like, uh, it is obviously, very obviously, I think, uh, changing for the better. What do you think, Erson? Because you've been you've been talking about this and evolving your thought process as well, and in integrating with manual therapy. How how has pain science evolved? What is your definition of it? And then where where can especially students that listen a good bit? Where can they start? Because I feel like most of them feel like it's either or. Right. I I think. One of the things I talk about a lot in my blog and in my seminars is the clinician who comes to me and they say, oh, I feel comfortable using pain science for the cervical spine, but I patients just get, you know, the, the SI rotation or their hip being out or out of alignment. And I'm like, you know, this is not something really that you should dabble in because if, if you are aware of the information of, of you know, at its simplest pain uh, being an output based on perceived threats of any number of inputs. And, you know, like Jason said, it's not just the input from sensitized tissues. It could be environmental, it's patient beliefs. There's, um, uh, you know, a lot of things that could potentially decrease those thresholds. Um, you know, it, it's not it's not something that you can kind of go half in or, or, or not. It's not just, even, even the term pain science. I mean, I, I love pain science. So I took Butler's first course in 2002. That's why I laugh when people talk about it, you know, being new. Um, but it, I, I like ISPI's uh, term for it, which is therapeutic neuroscience education, because it it's not just for people in pain. It's just for your patients. I mean, it's, you know, the neuroscience behind uh, what all the rapid changes or slow changes that we make on everyone. It, it's by and large neurophysiologic because you're just changing behavior and changing perception. So it, it it's, you know, over the years, I used to think, you know, even though I took those courses in 2002, I, I would use it on patients who were not responding or patients who 
everyone couldn't get to and I was supposed to fix and you know in air quotes and I would just think oh they're a non-responder I'll just start off with the all, you know all, all pain is an output but um, as as really as I started transitioning and a lot of that was um, you know due to Jason about six years ago or so and, and using it on every patient as opposed to um, you know just people who are not responding it, it it's also liberating because whatever your model is, whatever your school of thought is, it fits it. Like everything is, is just an input. Whatever you're doing, corrective exercise or needling or scraping or manipulating repeated motions, they're all just inputs. As long as the patient is aware and you decrease their kinesiophobia or fear avoidance, you're going to make changes. And it's just that people have this belief that the changes are due to whatever mechanism they learned behind it without thinking that they're just changing perception of, of you know, whatever is associated with the movement or position. So, I, you know, I, I think I, I do prefer the term therapeutic neuroscience education, even though pain science is what has caught on, because you just think that I need to use this only on people with pain. But really, I think it should just be part of every patient interaction to some degree. Some some who are of a growth mindset can can take it really well and some who are of a fixed mindset and just want a magic pill. Um, I, I just made someone cry, you know, just this week, actually. You I, monster. You know, I know. It's not Joe, is it? it yeah, it was Joe. I, He's weeping very silently. Yeah. I feel bad. No, she's like a teenager. Yeah. Like you know, a couple boy. years ago, if you'd asked me what students should do to learn pain neuroscience, I, I would have told people to start down at the receptor and I would have told them to read the first five chapters of The Sensitive Nervous System by David Butler. One of the hardest ones. Um, uh, yeah. Well, you know, I had to read them like four times for them to finally uh, get caught up because despite the PhD, I'm a little bit of a hardhead. And um, I, I, I have to say that, that that profoundly changed my practice. Thank you, David, uh, when I first did it. But now I, I think I've come to think of things a little differently. I think that part of Part of our problem when we talk about pain is that we always want to start down at the receptor level and we want to talk about A delta and, and C nociceptors. Instead, what we should be doing is we should be starting at the top and talking about how, how pain affects people and how we should change some of the ways that we behave and interact with these folks to help them help themselves. And so I think a few years ago, it would have been read those first five chapters of um, you know the sensitive nervous system and now it's you need to go to two blogs, and if you're writing something down, now would be a good time to get your pen ready. Uh, you need to go to the health skills blog from uh, Dr. Barney Thompson, uh, who's an occupational therapist and PhD, brilliant lady. She's going to give you the clinician side. And you need to go to Joletta Belton's My Cup of Joe blog to get the patient perspective. And looking at reading those two blog blogs and several of their important, you know, most popular articles, that will teach you far more about what you actually practically need to do in the clinic than understanding how gamma aminobutyric acid functions in the dorsal horn. You know, because that's, that's definitely not so important to making practical changes right away. So if you're a student, go to those two blogs, start interacting with, with clinicians who understand that material, and that's where you need to be. Go to Bronnie's blog, go to, go to Joletta's blog, read some of those. They're, they're great reads, they're easy reads. And they really help help you understand the patient's and clinician's perspective, because uh, you know, 
you know, the longer I practice, the more I realize. So we had this experience in fellowship training. It's like the old joke was that Gail Dial was always right. You just didn't realize it at the time. And so like there'll be different times because Gail Dial was a senior faculty in my program where I would realize that, yes, once again, of course, Dr. Hell is right about that, too. We just didn't realize it at the time. So as I get more and more experience with using this uh, with patients, I realize more and more that uh, Bronnie is right about more and more things. And I just I'm a little bit behind in discovering them. I think she she has written about how she's pretty skeptical of the therapeutic neuroscience education or TNE kind of a thing, because we're, we're still kind of making some of our same cardinal mistakes. We're still plugging ourselves into the role of person who's going to educate someone else. And uh, here, here, patient, I'm going to educate you about what this is about. You know, it can be done that way. It can be done much better. I'm confident that people like ISPI are teaching it very well, and they know what they're doing. Those are great resources. But I think we should all be careful about how how we we need to work to make sure that that doesn't become just another practitioner-centered uh, intervention on our part. So what's the what's the alternative? If 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 we're not seeing, regardless whether it's manual therapy or pain science, as as if we're not seen as a trusted um, source of information to provide, how do we do it? How do we how do we help the patient help themselves? Well, I think you've got to you've got to earn their trust first. You've got to earn you've got to get some results with that person in some way first, and they have to be moving toward you. Uh, a big part of it is, I mean, I spend a fair bit of the first the first part of my discussions with patients uh, getting to know them a little bit, not talking about like, oh, you know, what are your what are your worst fears? Um, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? No, I don't do any of that stuff. But you know, I just I talk to them like a normal person would. You know, you know, how far away do you live? What was the? I mean, I'm I'm here you know, in my clinic is in the belt inside the beltway of Washington, D.C., so traffic is terrible. Did you park okay? You know, maybe we do a little small talk about this and, you know, what kind of job do you have you got and what do you do for fitness? What do you do for fun? You know, where do you live? And then all do you the have kind any of cats? Stuff. Yeah, do you have any cats? If so, here's my cat. No, see, that's practitioner-centered. Do you see what I did there? <laughs> but it, it's your cat-centered. Right, yeah. I'm, well, yeah, but also practitioner's cat-centered. I mean, we can yeah. put that in the same group just for the purpose of the podcast. But, um, but those sorts of things just allow you to connect with someone else as a person. And then you have to begin this conversation uh, to talk about this stuff. It's got to be more centered on them. And I, I realized after hearing uh, Peter O'Sullivan talk about cognitive functional therapy at the San Diego Pain Summit this past year, which you should totally go if you've not been to a San Diego Summit. They're great. And um, Rajam Roos runs those. They're awesome. Uh, look them up. It's well worth your time. Um, and Hearing him talk and watching him work with people in the cognitive functional therapy CFT kind of way, um, I realize there's a, I, I have a lot more work to do of doing a better job of gently peeling back the layers of what my patient believes, what their anxieties are, what their real concerns are. Um, you know, I tell students all the time, understanding the patient's goal is not at the very end of the subjective saying, what are your goals for therapy, and then writing down whatever they say. That's not the patient's goal for therapy. You have to understand much more about uh, about what they understand about their problem, what they're what they're anxious about, what they're fearful about, what their concerns are with their problem. You've got to understand those things in order to to help someone uh, move forward with their problem. And it needs to just be much much more patient centered and discovery process, and much much less conveying of information. Because when the time's right, and when they do trust you, and when you do have a great relationship with someone, they have things they want to know. And I focus on telling them what they'd like to know, or if they have, if they have beliefs that are that are driving maladaptive behaviors in their life, that's a belief I'd like to come to at some point. I don't try to force it. 
I try to kind of let them lead me there to the best of my ability. It's that it's a back and forth interactive, interactive type of process. Yeah, it's building a relationship. Yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent. That's a hundred percent what it is. That's what what I said, but just really a whole lot shorter and probably better. So thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. That's what I'm, that's what I'm here for, um, Joe. Joe. Uh, Kind of integrating all this, obviously, you're in the clinic every single day. Do you feel like this is this is stuff that you're doing all the time? Um, your clinicians are doing all the time anyway? You know, there's always there's always room to to do better with with this kind of stuff. and and I think that um, you know for for me, uh, I, I do have to I, I still have to have the conversation with myself um, and and make sure that um, that I'm taking taking the right approach with 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 each each patient um, and and making sure that uh, that you are building that relationship um, in order to make sure that the approach that you choose uh, for that patient um, is uh, going to be well received. Um, so we, we do, we, we talk to our therapists about it and, and we, um, try, try to have, uh, that kind of open discussion. You're not going to get, uh, all your therapists to, to do the same things. Um, and there's a lot of variability in, in the way we practice. And, and I think that, uh, what you want to be able to do is have honest conversations uh, between all your therapists, so that so that everybody can, um, you know, uh, discuss the topic in a in a civil manner. <laughs> it's a hard conversation to have that when you, when you tell somebody, well, you know, you're you're not doing a good job talking to somebody. <laughs> you're not you're not really good at at being honest and connecting. You're not really good at building relationships. What you're doing is wrong. You're you're a bad human being. Well that that and you know Gene um everybody has their own biases that they that they have they've been to courses, they've been been through different uh, schools of thought. Everybody has has their own biases and it's about breaking down those uh, those biases to to help um, help get to a, a point where we can all discuss something um, without without getting upset. That that's quite a big of a of an issue. I feel like right now in the world of physical therapy, not just not not just the clinic, but um, at large. And Jason, to finish out with, I, I think to to well, is it an issue or is it just growth of a profession? Both. I think it's definitely growth. Um, I think how how you do it could determine the the accelerated or not growth because you can grow at different rates so if you if you if you don't know how to have proper discourse then you're not going to grow as quickly as you could agreed so it's, it's just knowing how to do it and and the avenues that we have now obviously if you, if you have systems and you have protocols in place in your in your business that could be um, very constructive even if they're um, even if they're not comfortable conversations, but when you're on social media all over the place and uh, sometimes context gets thrown out the window, it, it's it's a little bit different. And um, Jason, I think w- when when we talked about it, I should make a correction. It's not building relationships; it's be- building quality, honest relationships because you can have all kinds of dysfunctional relationships um, centered on on you versus the other person. So I think that that 
should be um, should be said. Um, final question, though, to, to close it out. Kyle Ridgway asked, what is PT doing right? What is it doing poorly? What problems are old but seen as novel to no- novices? What problems are new? And I think that that fits in into the, to this whole into this whole um, discussion that we were just having about discourse, about issues, about um, people bitching about all kinds of stuff. But ultimately, what are we still doing Five right? Five minutes. Though? Go. Two. Two. Okay. Wow. Um, gotta love Ridgeway with the, with all those questions. Great. So <laughs> I would say I think that we we are doing well. Um, things that I think we have historically done very well with as a profession. We are doing a great job at producing very high quality education, practice, and research. And we are doing um, a very good job of uh, gaining and and maintaining um, the trust of the public as trusted medical professionals. I think we're doing a great job about that. Those, those Those are things that we've done well and we've always done well. Even when we have, uh, Ben Fung would say, like, uh, PT has like 8% of the musculoskeletal market share uh, in, in the States. I mean, I, I don't know what the reference is, but I trust Ben. And uh, 8% is really small based on what the evidence shows that we can help people with. So there's a pretty big disconnect there. I think what the things that we're not doing well with are um, getting uh, access and being treated fairly by the healthcare system so that we can help patients which what I think we need to all make sure to re- understand that, that that's not about professional ego. That's about quality of care and availability of care, you know, low cost, low risk, non-invasive care that works for our patients. And right now our patients do not have as the, the access to that that they really should. And that a big part of that has to do with, with our ability to um, achieve a, a seat at the big decision-making healthcare table. Um, our colleagues in medicine have that, have a seat there. Certainly, pharmaceutical companies do. Certainly, medical device uh, manufacturers, uh, healthcare um, insurance companies do, but um, not too many other folks do. Um, you know, the nurses are doing a great job at standing up and, and pushing folks aside in a friendly way to make to give them a seat at the table because they have more than earned it. And I think that we we have a lot to learn from them in which in the ways in which we um, effectively advocate for uh, our patients being able to have uh, access to us and uh, the care that we provide. We could learn a lot from nursing about that. And they've got, their nursing has a really great tiered education, competency-based education system. You know, the nursing is just doing a lot of great things right, and I think that we need to keep building on what we're doing and, and take a little bit of a page from them to help uh, move healthcare forward for our patients. I like that. <clears throat> so, Kyle, go learn how to be a nurse. <laughs> yeah, and sh- trim the beard at least. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think that's great. And, and it's, it's been – I have a friend who's a physician's assistant and kind of hearing some of their struggles as a, as a professional as well uh, mirrors a lot of the stuff that we're going. It, it's just everyone's going through the same shit. It, it really is. We're not. We're not that unique, and we're we're still a fairly young medical profession. And what we've accomplished, and the evolution that we're going through, I think it's exciting more than anything. Yeah, there's a lot of potholes, and there's a lot of stuff that we can do better. But uh, I, I st- if if you're not if you're not opportunistic, and if you're not somewhat excited about what the the future of physical therapy has to offer, I mean, just don't get into it. And yeah, there's there's so much negativity, and there's debt and student loans and 
all the other, you know, useless stuff that people are doing that's not supported by science. But still, even with all that, we have the capacity to work with people, to help them, and to do, like you said, Jason, earlier, to do stuff that you actually enjoy doing and that makes a difference. And not many people get to say that in life. Yeah, PT's got a 98.5% employment rate. I mean, I know that's a problem. Like, I'm not going to say that it's not, but we have a 98.5% uh you know, employment rate. I mean, a, a, a license in physical therapy, when you come out with your DPT, that's pretty much a ticket to a guaranteed middle-class existence in our country. Um, if you look at the at the way that the scientific evidence is going, it uh, it's doing nothing but going the direction of interventions that we are some of the best at to include, you know, exercise and non-invasive care. You look at more and more of these trials that are comparing more expensive, more invasive, more risky uh, procedures, things like arthroscopy, injection, spinal fusion with with rehabilitation delivered by, you know, competent, well-trained providers, PTs, and uh, everything is going our way. I mean, if, you, if you're in PT right now and you're feeling sad or feeling like, you know, the world isn't going your way, I, I'm, I'm not sure what world you live in because it, it is definitely all coming our way. It's just coming in a slow way. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that's going to take some time to get there, but it is moving in a positive direction for our patients, and we're a big part of that that positive change. That's we just have to be ready to take it. That's all. I think that most PTs they're not ready to take yeah. it. Tell me more no, about I that. I just mean that they don't advocate for their profession as much, or they they kind of just sit back and yeah. and complain that uh, oh, even a massage therapist has direct access or. All the chiros have direct access, or we can't do needling in this state, but they don't necessarily do do things about it. I shouldn't have said a lot, but you know, many I would say they 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 complain about what we can't do more than revel in what we can do and how we can help our patients, but maybe they don't do anything about it either. You know, they're not they don't pay their dues or they don't awesome. support PACs or something. Yeah, I like that. totally agree. That's very well said, Urson. I know I know people who who hear you speak and have gone through your programs are definitely uh, uh, given the tools they need to, to be that advocate. But another way to look at it is like, you know, the, the probably the, the people working hardest to keep patients from having good access to our skills are the medical, is um, a medical cartel at the state level, which is really driven by our, our colleagues in orthopedics. Not our colleagues that we work with all the time, because they don't feel threatened by us and they're fine. But uh, I'm talking about the folks that really are into lobbying and that kind of stuff at the state level. Um, the state orthopedic societies are not interested in going after the chiropractors or the massage therapists or the personal trainers. Why do you think that is? They're not a threat to them, and we are. Because they're, they're considered that right there tells you about all you need to know about how good our how bright our future is, and really how bright our patients' future is with getting access to uh, low risk, low cost. Right. I think a lot of that too is like the the professions you mentioned. They're almost considered commodities versus we're just like this throwaway thing that's a copay and and not necessarily a commodity, you know. So I think there's a strange perception of, of our profession like that as well. Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, you're 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 100 right that we need to do a better job of uh, um, bringing up new professionals who really want to be that advocate and really want to push some of those boundaries and and really work work uh, work really hard to get to get patients that kind of quality care. I, I've never met a person that when you when you say physical therapy that they don't respect a physical therapist. I think most people have no idea what a physical therapist does. 
in a lot of ways. There's a lot of perceptions about that, but I have never met somebody that when, when you say to them you're a physical therapist that they think anything <laughs> else about aside from, oh, that's cool. Like nobody ever says, oh, wow, you're a physical therapist. That oh, sucks. no one says it sucks, but I think people have a very wide view of the amount of education it takes. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. But I mean, certainly there are other people who are dealing with a lot more, um, a much harsher public perception. Uh, you know, our, our colleagues in chiropractic have that have that kind of problem. That's that's sort of something that's sort of sitting on them. And you know, there there are many excellent chiropractors out there. And you know, I've many um, connected to many of them on social media. But you know, you graduate from one of those programs, and the rest of your life, you're having to explain why you're not that kind oh, of right. chiropractor. And yeah. that, yeah. that, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I love those guys, but at the same time, man, that was in the brochure. It's not like you weren't sure what you were getting into, right? I mean, that, yeah. that sort of stuff was in the brochure, so to speak. So, I mean, that is definitely a, um, a, an, an extra hurdle that, you know, so many really great evidence-based chiropractors have to deal with. Uh, they get sort of tarred with that brush and that's definitely not a problem we have. So we should definitely be fortunate in that way. Yeah, it's a tough go of it for for a lot in the medical profession, and um, you know we we have to remember that bad people, greedy people, negative people—they're negative people before they or they're these personalities before they get into the profession. Yeah. So you know the the orthos that that Jason was talking about, the shitty PTs, the shitty chiros—you know, they're they're chances are they were shitty human beings before they became shitty PTs and shitty chiros and shitty orthos. So we we can't change that all the time. It's just. Hopefully, less and less shitty people get into the, into the professions. That's right. That reminds me of a. Yeah, that's a positive way to end it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> topic. Physical therapy. Be less shitty. All right. <laughs> not, not accepting shitty people. Not accepting that's... shitty people, and someone doesn't care if your patients get better. Great. <laughs> this is a really positive podcast, guys. I really like the way this turned out. To quote the Lego Movie, everything is awesome. Yeah. There you go. That's awesome. Show. Well, Jason, if if um if our if our listeners want to get a hold of you, if they have more questions, we there's there's some other questions that we didn't we didn't get to, like people wanting to know Brian Harder wanted to know how to get into the military PT. Yeah. Um, Kyle Ridgeway had some other questions. <laughs> um, how, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, especially uh, Kyle. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, Kyle's got my uh got my home address. He can just send me a letter. <laughs> but um, so I'm on I'm on Twitter uh, at Jason Silvernail, all one word. Um, and I'm also on Facebook. Um. Uh, coincidentally um at this with the same name so you can find me on on those two places this is probably the best way to find me you can also find me on soma simple you can send me a private message or, or find me there as well uh and either one of those two places I've, I've got some information about military pt and you know tactical strength and conditioning and that kind of stuff in those locations or i can direct you to some folks who are who are savvy about that stuff as well and uh, people are welcome to reach out and find me there Awesome. We'll put all that stuff on, on the website too at updocmedia.com under podcast therapy insider. So Jason, man, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for um, introducing us to your cat, letting us know what he, what he's into. And um, we'll uh, check out his Facebook page and uh, look forward to getting coffee with you. Wonderful. Let's, let's, uh, let's absolutely do that. And we will, we will totally get that coffee. Jim. I can't wait. It's going to be great. Yeah, put it on Instagram. Yeah, never happen. Yes. Yeah, we'll put it on the IGs for Gene. On, on IGs. We'll, we'll get it on the Snapchats for Ben. There you go. Awesome, guys. Uh, Joe, Urs, yep. great chatting with you. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll be chatting soon. Sooner than you think. <laughs> All right. All right. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again next, next time on Therapy Insiders Podcast.